Why? Hey, John. Why? Thirty bucks. For what? For the cab. What cab? The cab I had to take. Take from where? The cab I had to take from the shed. Well, what happened to the car? I lost the keys. You lost the keys? I wouldn't give you yesterday's weather report, you shithead, you. I got a murderer to catch. Well, welcome to Trash Cannon. Um, today we are joined by Tim Lenner. Uh, uh, yes. Yes, Lenner, <laughs> who, who comes uh, joining us from uh, the Fiasco Brothers. Say hello, Tim. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on uh, to dispute whether or not things are in the trash cannon. Yes, I am. I am delighted because you know the setup is that I rotate through different um, guests every time, and uh, so without people um, sacrificing their own time for my interest <laughs> for free, um, <laughs> the show wouldn't free? exist. Oh crap! <laughs> Oh, I'll have to. No, uh, my my reward is that I got somebody else to watch this movie. <laughs> yes, yeah, that that's actually the award for uh, for a lot of things involving this show. But yeah, um, also hopefully we won't have a cameo by my one of my neighbors' asshole dogs because <laughs> I had two neighbors because I you know I live in a house that's split between three apartments and like. Both my upstairs and my downstairs neighbors both moved in with really yappy dogs, which has made my life a lot more fun. But um. I'm so sorry. My uh, my upstairs neighbor has kids that occasionally make a lot of noise, but they're usually asleep by 10 and I'm usually asleep by 11. So it hasn't mattered that much. Oh. Uh, she did come around knocking on everyone's door in in the building uh, last Christmas to say, yeah, I'm having guests over. There's going to be a lot of kids. I apologize in advance. And I thought that was like a genuinely cool thing to do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, kids kids are definitely worse than dogs. Um, <laughs> no offense to the parents out there. <laughs> oh, who am I, who am I kidding? Um, Let them take offense. How many parents are listening to us babble about truth or dare, a critical madness? This is true. And um, also apologies to my neighbors in case they find out about this podcast and are listening to it <laughs> right like now. Don't like their dogs. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, let me just say I'm talking about the other neighbors. If you're listening to this, right, right. What yes. I just said does not no, apply to not you. Not you. It's the other one. Got it's it. the other one. It, it's totally the other one. I'm wink, wink. Anyway, uh, okay. Tell my producer to cut this part out. Yeah. How, uh, this is going to be an eight-minute-long show because I ramble and digress. And if you cut out everything irrelevant, it's just it's it's going to be brief. Oh God, I do too. My ADD is like flaring up right now. Challenge um, accepted. Anyway, yeah. So let's um let's talk about. Let's try to talk about Truth for Dare, Critical Madness, which honestly, like the title alone hooked me. It's such a great, great title. It um, is, because it, it honestly doesn't mean much. No, no, it doesn't, especially in the context of the movie. Uh, but but we'll get into that when we talk about the actual plot. But, uh, but Tim, you're the expert, and you really wanted to do this movie, and in fact, you've done it, you've talked about it on online before so um usually i throw out a lot of research because i love 
love doing that kind of thing. But since you're so familiar with it, why don't you talk about what you know about the background of the movie, its origins? Sure thing, sure thing. I'm an unreliable narrator. So this is the stuff as I know it. If I got it wrong, it's because I'm wrong. Uh, it's not because I'm an intentional liar. But uh, this... Uh, it doesn't just have a great title. It had a fantastic VHS box. Uh-huh. Uh, it had this like glitter, well, not glitter, but like foil, like a shiny logo that said truth or dare. And then the bottom half of it was red foil instead of silver because, you know, murder movie. And it had like foil red blood trickling down the box cover. What <laughs> I didn't realize was like every comic book in 1992 was going to have that kind of foil cover to get somebody to read it. So it's basically like everything crappy about superhero comics half a decade earlier. And yeah, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover and it turns out you shouldn't judge a VHS tape by its cover either because it will lie to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it came out in 1986 and my local video store got it in 1986 so I saw this when I was 11 or 12 uh, and it no joke I remembered elements of this for 30 years when it finally came out on Blu-ray uh, I was able to re-watch it for the first time in decades and there were little bits in it that I remembered exactly <laughs> it's maybe you had to be 11 when you saw it, but it was, uh, it turned out to be something that was shot directly for the home video market, which was kind of a novelty back then. Uh, and I, I had no idea about this until much, much later, but the director was 17 years old when he wrote it and 18 when he directed the film. Mm hmm. And once you know that, that's kind of the Rosetta Stone to the entire film, that it's this incredibly driven, incredibly enthusiastic novice making a movie. Yeah. And honestly, it's not like compared to other B-movies made by somebody who's very young, like um, the example that jumps off my mind is uh, Weasel's Rip My Flesh. Okay. Um, the execution is very flawed, <laughs> and we'll get into that. But honestly, it has more interesting ideas than what you might expect. From... Right. I mean, it's it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, yeah. It it has a script with structure in it. It has rising stakes as it goes into the third act and things like that. I mean, I can't say it's good. But mm-hmm. I can say it's amazingly memorable and entertaining. Like, Roadhouse is not a good movie, but I do love it. Yes. <laughs> Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness is not a good movie, but I do legit enjoy it. And I wouldn't keep trying to make people see it if I didn't think there really was something in there that they would get out of it. Yeah. Um, and before you enter the movie itself, also. Um... Do you, I'm sure you know about the movie Celebrity Connection? Yes. John Brace, the guy who plays Mike Strauber, was in one episode of Cheers. <laughs> that too. Well, that's one, but what's the yeah, other? Yeah, the other one is uh, A.J. McLean, I believe of the Backstreet Boys, Yep. Uh, plays the killer in the flashbacks to the killer's childhood. It is a wordless part. He just sort of has to sit around looking kind of creepy and have like, 
stage blood on his hand. But yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, oh, what was his name? Lou Pearlman was based in Florida and this movie was made in Florida. So young AJ was probably used to, like he probably has some local commercials or any stuff like that around this time. And when they were looking for people to be in the boy band, he would have already had at least some entertainment experience. Yeah, I, I try to find out if there was like more of a story there, like if this movie did somehow get him noticed, but I haven't been able to. Yeah. Uh, he got things. noticed by, you know, dweebs like me that will talk it up three decades <laughs> later. I have the feeling that when he was in the Backstreet Boys, it didn't matter much whether or not he was in this. No, probably not. Um, also, other <laughs> other celebrity connections is Bruce Gold is in it, and he was in an episode of Full House. Oh! Um, that was pretty much his only other thing, although he also appeared as himself as in... Uh, Penn and Teller fool us like 10 years ah. later um, somehow. Oh, he was also on Up All Night. Okay. Um, USA Up All Night, which hopefully my older listeners are aware of. And Mary for um, Mary Fanero, who played um, Sharon, he, she actually had a legit career that started with True for Dare as well. Okay. Like it, it didn't expand past the 90s, but um, she was in stuff like an episode of Matlock, an episode of Dave's World. Um, if and remembers uh, that. Dave Barry's from Florida, so I don't know if they filmed in Florida or just set it there. But that's another sort of uh, it. Uh, she's on two episodes of Miami Vice as well. And in the uh, the making of video that I saw. Uh, they mentioned that because Miami Vice was filming in in the rough area there, there was like a pool of actors they could draw from. That there was like the really big production that was attracting acting talent, and they were sort of able to sucker fish onto that. Oh, okay, that does explain a lot. Yeah, and apparently in uh, any given Sunday, the Oliver Stone uh, football movie. So I might have to watch that again just yeah. to see if I can spot. You know, uh, Mary Fanaro in she's credited as player's wife. So I bet it's not even a speaking part, but she Probably was not. she was there. She was in it at least briefly. Uh, yeah, it it's one of those things like how Law and Order has featured every actor in the New York area because they need, you know, eight or ten parts that say two lines for a thousand episodes like it'll it'll fold through eventually everybody will be on it like a lot of them end up being the people in the cold opening who just find the course <laughs> yeah the two cops who go oh man this ain't good bum, bum, bum. you need a different two guys to go oh man this ain't good yeah i need to find out if um Oh my god, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. It's like one of my favorite podcasts, but uh oh Harry Zabrowski. Okay um, from last podcast on the left is was ever on Law and Order. It, shout out to last podcast on the left. Uh, especially I mean, because if, if he's a working actor in the New York area, probably. I mean that thing ran for what, twenty-two years? Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. But, but yeah, that was a shout out, especially because they're probably going to be hiring a researcher in the next few months. So, <laughs> ah, and, and I do want to shout out to 
uh, the actor with the completely awesome name Asbestos Felt. Yes. <laughs> You'll know him when you see him, people. He was also in the follow-up to this movie, Killing Spree. Yes. Yeah, he's the lead in Killing Spree, isn't he? He he wraps a summary of the plot of the movie during the closing credits of Killing Spree, which is another reason you need to watch it. That's kind of wonderful. I, I will have to look for a uh, a copy of Killing Spree out there. I buy a lot of my stuff used. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of pawn shops and a couple of used record stores that, that I haunt. And occasionally they do surprise me. Yeah, yeah, because unfortunately it's not on YouTube, except for the famous scene where he decapitates the woman and throws her head. Oh, her right, friend. right. The, the, <laughs> this isn't particularly great severed head. Hey, <laughs> how does it feel, Ben? How does it feel to dip your wick twice in one day? <laughs> You're a horny old bastard, aren't you? <laughs> Bitch! Just like in my dreams! <laughs> so I got your girlfriend to give me some head too, buddy! Her head! <laughs> to the wild on this, bud! I love that scene so much. I, I admire their enthusiasm. I genuinely <laughs> admire their enthusiasm. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the um, spiritual prequel to <laughs> Killing Spring, <laughs> which is true for Dare. Um, right, which actually has a spiritual prequel of its own. Oh, which movie was that? There was an anthology film called Twisted Illusions that uh, the director did a segment for and in twisted illusions there's a guy playing truth or dare with a hallucination and it turns out it's just his own conscience having him painfully kill himself like daring him to cut off more and more parts of his own body to atone for for the thing that he did oh wow did tim redder direct that before he did this yes yes and that's why this one kind of seems like two movies sewn together yeah but yeah, uh, so Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, A Synopsis, A Podcast, that, that sentence had colon cancer. Um, <laughs> so there's this goober named Mike Strauber whose girlfriend or wife is cheating on him with his best friend. And he is a nervous and high-strung sort of lad, so he has a complete mental breakdown uh, after he walks in on them at length. He, he like, he's like, did I get the mail? Do I, do I need to get the mail? I don't need to get the mail. I like walking mm-hmm. back and forth, back and forth, like three steps forward, one step back, eventually finding them getting up to dirty shenanigans in the bedroom. Uh, freaks out, runs away, drives away, almost kills himself, decides not to kill himself, and then picks up a hitchhiker who is later revealed to be a hallucination, Mm -hmm. goes to a campground 
the uh, the park ranger warns him about all of the various rules, and he go he basically plays a semi like a potentially lethal game of truth or dare with his own conscience and winds up ripping out his own tongue, cutting off a finger, slashing his chest. And the only reason he doesn't die is that the park ranger comes by to write him a ticket for having a campfire too late and then sees his mutilated thrashing body on the ground and has an equal magnitude freak out. Like, oh my God, what even is this? Yeah. Which is honestly probably how that would go. So yeah, much... this isn't in the job description. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was expecting to tell teenagers to hide their beer. This guy just mutilated himself. Even for Florida, I did not sign up for this. So he calls an ambulance, and Mike gets sent to a mental hospital. And uh, just to, to break in for this, because otherwise I might forget to say it, the first time I saw this back in 86, there was this, you know, when they show the mental hospital, you hear... Beep, 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 beep. And then there's a side-scrolling caption identifying it as the mental hospital at the bottom of the screen. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment of dislocation. This might be why I remember the movie so well, is that I thought I was getting a weather report on a VHS tape. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Just like, wait, what? And it just, I mean, obviously, it's that whatever character generator he used for the captions only did that. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I think that's what he was using. Yeah. Yeah, just something at like the local public access station. So that's what put the caption on there. But I just remember thinking like, wait, this is on tape. Why am I getting a weather? Oh, no, it's the caption. So budget cuts and overcrowding means that the quieter you know, less openly freaky homicidal people are being let loose with their I'm totally sane papers. Ronald and, Reagan strikes again. Yeah, pretty much. Reaganomics in action, which does mean that, that again, that's like a little bit of realism in there. You need a reason for the guy to break out. And it turns out he didn't break out. They let him go. Yeah. And, and hilariously enough, this is the second movie in a row I'm talking about this podcast where underfunding of mental hospitals is a serious plot point. <laughs> is a contributing factor to the murder spree? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So he gets out, he drives immediately to his ex's place, uh, which kind of foresees the, the MRA sort of, you know, Reddit red pillar who demands his right as, as an alpha male. Except this guy's a complete schmuck. He does kill the new boyfriend, but uh, his digital watch timer goes off. So Sharon sees him, freaks out, lightly grazes his abdomen with the knife she was using to chop salad. And he has another full on goober panic fit, goes outside and flails around on the ground until somebody calls an ambulance. And then we get beep, 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 Sunnyvale Mental Institution <laughs> again, because he's back there. But eventually, uh, he has a hallucination where he plays another game of truth or dare, cuts off a chunk of his own face, and goes largely catatonic. Yeah, uh, oh, and this is after he gets three or four mental patients to do the same to themselves. Oh, I see. The I thought game. they were hallucinations as well. Cause he snuck a grenade into the mental hospital. I, I no, I think, I think they were supposed to be real. Huh? 
Well, that's the great yeah. thing about great art is that it's so open to multiple valid interpretations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people who may or may not have blown their own faces up with grenades uh, or cut their own leg off as part of a truth or dare game are, are also in here. And then Mike goes largely catatonic. Uh, he goes into basically slasher mode. He doesn't talk and he's got this copper mask that he built in metal shop in the insane asylum because you want grinding wheels and sharpeners and metal casting equipment around all the crazies uh yeah uh i i wish i'd thought of this one of the people who saw it at b-fest described this as a mask that makes him kind of look like a potato (laughs) they're not i was gonna say that or um like a really um, like how old school, oh God, this is such a geeky reference, but like, like how old school Doctor Who would rip off its own villains. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Z grade version of the Cybermen that were, that was done for like some throwaway episode of classic Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah, we got to go back to the well again, put the potato mask on it. It's got a big exaggerated frowny face. It kind of looks like he... He wanted to cosplay a Ninja Turtle and can't carry it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but he builds this mask. Uh, one of the orderlies decides to make fun of him by showing him a picture of his, uh, his ex. He breaks the picture frame and now he's got like broken glass and a sharpened pencil. And he makes his, you know, makes short work of several people. Uh, kicks and runs over off a of baby. Staircase. Not, not yet. No, yeah, he's okay. got to escape first. <laughs> he escapes in a stolen car that uh, that has every weapon he'll be using later, I guess. And yes, runs into like plows into a baby carriage, <laughs> which again, an 18 year old wrote this. So he was like, all right, what's the most transgressive, awful, badass thing my killer can do? He's going to wipe out a baby. And I have to say, I, I, I'm sorry I jumped ahead, but I think I just got excited because uh, last month's episode, Ice Cream Man, the movie kept promising kid violence, and I wasn't getting it. And never delivered? <laughs> yeah, oh. never delivered. If <laughs> only Tim Ritter had directed Ice Cream Man. Is that the Clint Howard one? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm sh- I, I guarantee the cover has like an eyeball on the top of the ice cream cone or something. Blood dripping out of it instead of chocolate syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, and then he, he basically goes in a, a beeline back to Sharon's place, uh, occasionally stopping to murder somebody to death because otherwise it would be a slasher movie with like a body count of two. And a couple of incredibly idiot- idiotic, odious comic relief police show up. There's like the apoplectic boss and the loose cannon, and they just yell at each other and screw things up, and it cuts back to them every so often. And eventually, uh, Mike gets to Sharon's place, kills pretty much everybody there except uh, the the screaming chief cop, gets shot, starts to get into a, a standoff with the, the man, and then uh, Chief scream a lot actually does something that I thought was legit brilliant. He dares Mike to put down the gun and surrender. Mm-hmm. And because that's his, you know, his Batman villain psychosis, he does. The By the way, there were three sequels and a fake sequel. I have seen none of them. 
Oh, wow. There's truth or dare four out there, man. Are they are they all done by Tim Ritter? I believe Tim Ritter has done all of them, except there's one called something like Deadly Fantasies that was released in some markets as Truth or Dare 2 and has nothing to do with the greater uh, series as a whole. Uh, okay. Well, and we also have Bloomhouse's Truth or Dare, which is a inferior movie to this one. <laughs> right. I mean, think about that. They must have probably dropped 15 or 20 mil on Blumhouse Truth or Dare and... Honestly, if Tim Ritter had 15 million, I'd love to see what he could do with it. Even if he had five. Oh, if I won the lottery, I would be very, very tempted to try and fund some some micro budget things like that. Yeah, or giving uh, B movie directors a chance to work with like blockbuster budgets. Yeah, I would. Well, love I mean, to if I that. were if I were crazy stock market billionaire, Tim Leonard, yes, uh, <laughs> John Sales would just be able to do whatever he wanted. And yeah, probably Tim Ritter would get like a Michael Bay budget just to see what he'd do with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I could, because honestly, it sort of disappointed me that Tim Ritter didn't end up going the same route as like Peter Jackson or Sam Raimi. Yeah. I could see it. Yeah, I, I mean, he he knows his camera placement. He, he has some legit, very good shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he's he's hampered by mid Florida dinner theater actors, but right, <laughs> right, right. Of when when you can't really afford to pay anybody, you get what you get. Yeah, but even the writing is clever, and I kind of want to get into this because I'm I, uh, I I'm glad you brought up like the alpha male uh, MRA thing because like that was the thing that that actually surprised me because I came into this knowing very little about this movie except. Except I kind of knew that it that um, Killing Spree, which I did see, uh, picked up a few notes from from this movie too. But um, so it kind of starts out the same way as um, another Z grade movie. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Tim, but Las Vegas Bloodbath. No, I'm afraid not. Yeah, it's probably. And you can tell I watch a lot of B movies and Z movies because I actually have to think about whether this statement is true. Uh, but it's probably the most ruthlessly misogynistic movie I've ever seen. Oh God. Um, I mean, I'm 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 very uh like I don't believe that, you know, and, and I'm sure my listeners don't need me to to elaborate on this, but just in case. Like I'm not a I'm not the sort of person who thinks that any movie that involves violence against women is inherently misogynistic. But so when I say that this movie that movie was probably the most misogynistic movie I've ever seen, it actually means a lot. I think. Yeah. I, I think. Um, well, it's not our, how the movie does. It's it's not what the movie does. It's how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And this movie yeah. has like a. 30 minute scene where a bunch of women who um, just like viciously gossip about each other and call each other slut for it. And it goes on for like 30 minutes. So, and then they get brutally murdered, including a pregnant woman who has her baby torn out of her womb. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Nothing wrong with that guy's mentality. <laughs> yeah. And ironically, uh, fun fact, it was the first, it was the debut movie of Neil Laboot. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
I'm kidding. Oh. That was probably like a 10-year-old joke. <laughs> no, I think um, I think the guy who directed it, uh, he, he like ended up, um, well, I don't want to say anything that could get me into legal trouble, but allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> he ran into some legal problems and like he did a website that was based on... Um, did a website that had like unhinged rants about religion and and was yeah just really bizarre anyway uh so yeah again speaking of mra but but like and, but that's the thing that really got me about this movie was like so i was kind of expecting that it would be like las vegas bloodbath you know the the wife will would either be either a, a ditzy bimbo or like a deliberately malicious Lisa from the room-esque character. But instead, she is almost as sympathetic as you can make a character like her because uh, the movie just really strongly implies that that it, it is actually partially Mike's fault because he's a little overbearing. He won't let her work. You know, she's had to deal with his his mental problems. And, and then a lot of this is just implied, but I think it movie actually does a surprisingly good job of putting it between the lines. Oh and, yeah. And, and it even like when he finds them, she even says, I tried, I tried to tell you, I wanted to tell you like, well, yeah. And she, not just she that, doesn't you, even say like, well, I guess it's now out in the open loser. She's, she's yeah. she feels bad. Well, we even see her like wanting to tell him and about to tell him, but like yeah. he either, he, he either blows her off or he, He's about to share good news about his job. Yeah. Um, I mean, the sequence kind of goes on too long, and this is kind of part of where you can tell that he, you know, that the director is is very um, unpolished because it's like the same basic scene repeats over and over again, yeah. like <laughs> for like twenty minutes. Well, talk um, is cheap, and action costs money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But at the same time, it's like it's like a level of it's a level of characterization you definitely wouldn't expect from a movie like this. And Sharon, like aside from the fact that she she plays kind of a mean joke on her boyfriend later on, where she pretends that she's also talking yeah. with a lover, which she really isn't. Um, well, but... remember remember what Oscar Wilde said: the man who marries his mistress creates a vacancy in the position. Right. <laughs> but but just to clarify, it's never stated that she's also cheating on the boyfriend. And no, no, implies that yeah. yeah, she just has like a really well. She has my sense of humor. I should <laughs> to be to be perfectly honest. So that that probably made me like the character even more. Well, anything um, where where they're not just stamped out by a machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know. The, there's an opportunity because I mean, it really would have been easy to just make her into this weird sexist caricature. Yeah. Um, the bitch who had it coming. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's not what the movie really does at all. No. Um, hey, uh, Tim Ritter, age 18 was significantly more woke than a lot of filmmakers now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or, um, or, and, and he definitely wasn't, um, artificially woke like a certain uh, major sci-fi action franchise that recently released its uh, latest movie and despite years of build-up and hints didn't have 
two of the main characters in a LGBT relationship and instead had two random women who aren't even named in the script kiss. Uh, anyway. Oh. <laughs> I, as of this taping, I have not yet seen the most recent Star Wars. Oh, shit. Sorry, I, I didn't... Uh, do you know, you know, someone was talking to me about it at, uh, at work earlier today and said, I don't want to ruin it for you. And I said, from what I've heard, this one's self-ruining. Yeah, to be honest, I haven't seen it either. Uh, uh, it was just like the first thing I looked up was whether or not they actually went ahead with the the pen, the pen, <laughs> the Pofin romance. Oh, and, see, you, you have to understand that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away with a thousand different alien species. Uh, I'm sorry, men do not sleep with men. That's just how it is. Sorry, done. Yes. Yeah. Especially when they're not when they're lead characters, right? Uh, right. I mean, anyway. maybe there was a Y-wing pilot somewhere in one of those flying coffins that was gay, but <laughs> we'll never find out because he never would have gotten through. Tell my husband I love him by the time it exploded. Like when you turn the ignition key on a Y-wing, it explodes. Porkins and Wedge, I bet. Let's, yeah, uh, let, let, let's make that, that cannon. Point. Yes. <laughs> in, in my head, cannon. Uh, the undoubtedly some or all of this is getting cut out but i uh, in an old DD group of mine we just sort of randomly thought thank god like if porkins was the name of the one fat guy thank god lucas didn't cast one black dude to also be a rebel pilot <laughs> <laughs> i'll just leave it there yes <laughs> Oh man. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, there there is some stuff going on in in the script. Uh my own theory of it like once once Mike gets the mask on, he's a personality-free hulking murderous presence just like a bunch of other ones in a bunch yeah. of other slasher movies. The first part of it up until like the campground is a remake of that section from Twisted Illusions. After that, it's pretty much Halloween with the comic relief police from Last House on the left grafted onto it. And yeah, yeah, well, I mean, when I was 17, I was not a very original writer either. I'm not knocking Tim Ritter for, for copying something that he obviously liked and was influenced by. I'm just saying that's pretty much what it is. No, no, I definitely agree, and that's probably why I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't as engaged with the third act as I was earlier, because on top of being pleasantly surprised by the Mike-Sharon relationship, the scene, the campfire scene is really good. Yeah! Um, I mean, acting, I mean, the acting could be better, obviously, like you said, it's it's Florida community theater level, but but like... I didn't see it coming because I honestly, again, like having seen so many of these types of movies and, and this movie came out, I should probably uh, note that the movie came out in 1986. So it wasn't like an early entry into the slasher genre. There had been no, no, movies it was before late ish. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think that he was on some level playing with formula here because like, you see the scene where he picks up a hitchhiker, you totally expect him to just snap and murder her, 
but instead it turns out to be a hallucination and where and, and like it it doesn't throw it at you it just like slowly kind of hints at it like oh the hitchhiker has the same name as his wife that's weird maybe that's what's going to cause him to snap and then suddenly the hitchhiker turns malicious and and just sort of taunts him into mutilating himself and it's just and it's actually really a a well-written scene that uh uh, subverts your <laughs> that subverts your expectations and in a good yeah, way yeah. not 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 in a badly written Ryan Johnson way um there's God, uh, I don't know why I keep going back to Star Wars <laughs> stop, stop, just keep stop. just keep beating up the billion dollar franchise yeah there's there's one other part of the hitchhiker scene that subverts audience expectations as as they're playing truth or dare Mike dares her to lift up her top and she does but the audience doesn't see it mm-hmm like that was, you know, when when you're watching a direct-to-video horror movie from the mid '80s, eventually the boobs come out. But in that particular scene, it doesn't happen either because the actress refused, or because Tim Ritter thought it would be more visually interesting if we see Mike's reaction rather than the actual event. Yeah, and if I remember right, it's right after that that she that things turn really creepy and she yes. challenges him to take his own eye out. Yeah. And then he, he's able to, you know, basically pull like, like throw a flag on the play and say, Oh yeah, well you have to take your eye out. And then she does and, and has no ill effects from it. So yeah, that's, that's when you realize like, Oh crap, she's not real. What's going on here. And, and honestly, this was my other favorite scene with, uh, where and maybe it is a hallucination now that I think about it, but where he gets all the other patients to engage in truth or dare too and gets them to mutilate themselves while yeah. he also mutilates himself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean truth or dare ordinarily isn't a suicide pact, but but yeah, I it's it's all tied up in his personality and it's all tied up in, in what's making him tick. So the idea is, uh, at least at, at that point in the movie, before he just becomes, you know, guy who drives around killing people, that he's viewing it as, you know, it's a dare, so you have to do it. That's the mm-hmm. rules. Uh, nobody picks truth. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> I thought that would be, like, a, a bigger element, but... Uh... But I guess not. And and no, oh, we should mention that they do flash back to his childhood and apparently like his whole psychosis originates from the fact that uh I don't know. I, I mean, surprisingly given how many scenes they had of Mike flashing back to his and Sharon's relationship and all the hints he had that she was having an affair, they yeah. didn't really dwell on this anymore. So to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what happens. It's a hint, I guess. Like, my take on it is that he was this unpopular weird kid because he was not neurotypical. And the other kids realized they could push him into doing stuff to hurt himself if they were playing truth or dare. Yeah, and then he took it too far and he freaked out even the kids. And then Yeah, they they realized how far they could push him and then freaked out and ran away. Yeah. Which is honestly an interesting take on a slasher villain origin, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the classic slasher always had 
something happened 10 or 15 years ago and then repeat itself. Uh-huh. I mean, even like Madman had the, and every so often he comes back and Friday the 13th had my son died in this camp and Nightmare on Elm Street was the parents burned the child murderer alive. Like it's always the past coming back. Uh, Halloween had, you know, young Michael Myers killed his, his sister or his mm-hmm. babysitter. And then, you know, 20 years later gets out of the asylum. There's always something like that. Yeah, but so, it's usually something more extreme, more tragic. And this is like, it, it manages to be both kind of mundane, but also really creepy on its own. Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, he's he knows the form. Tim Ritter knows what you have to do to make a slasher movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's the script he wrote when he was 17. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit like what we would have gotten if See You Next Wednesday ever got made. Oh, yeah. Uh, could you explain that? Because I only vaguely know about. OK, so uh, there's a, a line of dialogue in 2001, A Space Odyssey, when some characters are on the the space phone. Uh-huh. And and when they're leaving, like they're hanging up, one of them says, all right, I'll see you next Wednesday. And then they terminate the call. John Landis, for some reason, thought see you next Wednesday was the greatest thing in the world. Like huh. it could be anything. It could be a taunting note from a killer. It could be a promise. It could be a threat. Uh, so he came up with this idea for a movie when he was like 16 or 17. And he's never, like, released the script or anything that I'm aware of. He said in interviews, it's exactly the kind of movie a 17-year-old would think of. But every so often in his other films, he'll use an idea from it. And he'll credit See You Next Wednesday. Like, in American Werewolf in London, that's the title of the porno theater playing in Soho. Or the porno flick playing in Soho. Uh, in the Blues Brothers, right before the cop car runs out, like zips out, lights and sirens going and slams into the Winnebago, it's behind a big billboard for a movie called See You Next Wednesday. It just it shows up a lot uh, in Thriller in the movie within the video. The cops find a note from the killer and it says See You Next Wednesday. Wow. So that it's is... just like somehow or other truth or dare is what would happen if see you next Wednesday actually got made when John Landis thought of it. We don't know what it's about, but I'm sure it would have been better than the stupids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, maybe nobody would have gotten killed making it. True. Oh God. (laughs) Say what you will about Tim Ritter and his micro budget fiasco. Everybody lived through the production of it. This is true. <laughs> oh, that got dark. <laughs> Editing! Well, it's a movie about... I don't know. I'll probably keep it in. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I'm used to sounding like a goofus. Anything, anything that happens in here is because I'm a giant fool. Well, we're we're talking about a movie where a car runs over a baby in a carriage. So I guess yeah. really good. <laughs> so, I mean... There's a certain amount of good taste that just will not be showing up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I do think that he put that in to be transgressive and extreme as a way for like, if a horror fan sees this scene, he'll tell other people they've got to see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I could see myself. Well, even now having that kind of. Reasoning. Yeah. 
mean, <laughs> hey, you got to check out this movie. Somebody runs over a baby. For people like us, that's an endorsement. <laughs> there, there's a baby in danger in Killing Spree, but unless I'm completely misremembering, nothing happened. So uh, I feel like he was probably calling back to that to this. <laughs> and uh, in Truck Turner, a uh, black exploitation movie with Isaac Hayes as a, a totally badass bounty hunter and skip tracer. There's a baby carriage that gets hit by a car, but it's just full of like recyclable soda cans. <laughs> they just go spraying everywhere, and it's like, oh, thank goodness, nothing, nobody really got hurt. It's just some homeless dude was gathering empties and put them in a baby carriage. In one of the functions of a horror film is to be transgressive, and that's an extraordinarily transgressive thing to put in. Yeah, especially by today's standards. Oh yeah. Where cinema is not supposed to be transgressive or unexpected in any right. Way. Everything's supposed to have already been chewed up and pre-digested for you before you drink it out of your ninety-six ounce cup. Yep, <clears throat> Star Wars. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> any large <laughs> franchise, a billion-dollar things. I mean, I I really do. I genuinely enjoyed the Marvel movies. I liked them some much more than others, but I didn't dislike any of them. I. I paid my $11 and watched the cinema product and enjoyed the cinema product. Uh, I, I can't knock things for being successful unless it's Michael Bay. People are going to see the things that they want to see. We got, what, six Transformers movies and only one of them had a narrative. Uh, it's just, it's what's going to happen. It's what people are, are currently paying to see. I... I would love an opportunity for a whole bunch of people to see Truth or Dare. I sponsored it at B-Fest last year specifically because I wanted 150 bad movie fans to to get that dumped in front of their eyeballs and have them enjoy it. I also got to walk across the stage with a steering wheel drawn on a paper plate and sort of mime driving whenever the, uh, the driving theme went up. And, and that's something I really do want to talk about is the incredibly repetitive eight note electronic score is <laughs> like, that's, I think what I remembered most about the movie more than any other thing about the movie is that whenever Mike is driving around in his car, you, the, the, there's one guy with one finger hitting one keyboard key. And so we get dun 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 over and over and over and over.
And it's a constant delight for me. I love that goofball little soundtrack thing. I, I, I would not have remembered the movie nearly as much if it didn't have that score. Uh, and, and it was my great pleasure to, you know, slowly bop across the stage in front of the movie at B-Fest, pretending to drive when the driving theme was playing. Uh, the first time it shows up, I was able to cross the stage three times, just not even walking fast, just sort of walking slow all the way across all the way back one more time and then the sound cut out before i could start a fourth one i didn't plan that but it happened and it was just wonderful and extraordinarily validating because everybody watching it started like i could hear them chuckling the first time i went across and they were losing it the third time just sort of a how long is this even gonna take reaction yeah, and that kind of um, segues into what I wanted to ask you, which is that, like, my experience was I was extremely intrigued by the movie by the end of the um, first and second acts, but the third act really did lose me. Um, I will admit that I kind of laughed at one of the jokes involving the two Keystone cops, like, um, when they were arguing over the fact that... Uh, uh, the dim-witted cop lost the keys. Yes, lost the keys to his cruiser. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's well, there's one point where the yelling chief says, I wouldn't give you yesterday's weather report, you shithead, you. <laughs> oh, I forgot to write that down, but yeah, yeah that was yeah. That, that was a quote I enjoyed. But other than that, I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I, I just, I just kind to I mean you mentioned it before it kind of does feel like two movies and it's like one really interesting movie and one that's really just kind of generic and not yeah. too interesting I don't know do do you feel the same way well um I the the affection I feel for this movie like the reasons to watch it are not the main plot oh, okay the main plot is every slasher movie you've ever seen there's a big mm-hmm. dude with a bunch of weapons and bad things happen to people's torsos. But around the edges, like those comedy cops yelling at each other, the forensic dentist on the scene to check whether or not the uh, the body in the shed really is the killer. And then it turns out it isn't the killer. Uh, there, there's a scene of firemen like raking the coals of the shed and the shed looks like it's about four square feet. You really <laughs> don't need to do much raking in the wreckage, but... They, they somehow or other, 18-year-old Tim Ritter convinced the fire department to come out and have a couple guys rake through this to add some production value. You know, that, that score is probably at least 40% of why I love this movie, is that it's just so ridiculous. Uh, there's, there's a lot of other bits. There's like the mean people in their hot rod car, where it's like a tiny little oh, yeah. slice of the 50s landed into the film. Uh, there's, the, you know, things don't go real well until the end when, when the one cop who's been paying attention says, I dare you to stop the killing spree. And Mike's like, oh, it's a dare. I guess I'd better stop the killing spree. <laughs> yeah, I actually did like that part. Yeah, okay. that's, I, I did, that's did a legit it. clever thing. Yeah, especially because the the true for dare motif doesn't really carry over from the 
mental asylum scene where no the patients to mutilate themselves yeah once he puts the mask on there's nothing going on behind that mask it's just you know and and that's really too bad because john brace pulls some amazingly goofy faces over Mm. the course of his performance once he's got the mask on it's it's any other movie where there's a guy covering his face and wearing a jumpsuit and shanking people yeah Uh, it you know, nobody knew at the time that one of the Backstreet Boys was in the flashbacks. Uh, <laughs> nothing like that. So for for me, at least, really the joy is making other people watch this and realize that it actually got made. Fair enough, yeah. And, and the other part of the joy is dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So it, you know, I I guess I'm patient zero to a significant-ish number of people for this movie. If your local video store didn't happen to get it in 1986 or, you know, a couple years after, then maybe you just never found out about it. It it was a micro-budget, direct-to-video horror movie from Florida. It's not, you know, it's not from Hollywood. It's not from New York. It's not from Chicago, where they had, like, bigger regional scenes for people making stuff it's just sort of a weird little cockeyed miracle that got made and dropped onto celluloid it's goofier at the beginning but there are a couple of neat moments there's the woman complaining that the murderer knocked over her garbage can and he eventually belts her with a medieval mace to take her out of the yes. movie. i can't believe i forgot about that yeah yeah i mean that's just somebody was goofing around and having fun with that uh, you know, at one point he, he chainsaws, a a kid and a little league team. He does a drive by chainsawing to, to kill a kid. Like that's pretty extreme. That's, uh, that's the kind of thing that horror fans will remember and will speak favorably about it. It's see, it's not a fan film. It's not like the people who've been doing like their own, uh, intellectual property law infringing nightmare on elm street or halloween or friday the 13th fan films but it was made by somebody who does dig horror movies and uh, wants to make his own and wants to reflect the thing he enjoys from the genre yeah yeah and it, it supports what i was what i said um last time is like one of the reasons i i do love movies like this is that they have a certain creativity and unpredictability that you don't get out of a lot of big budget movies especially right uh, especially nowadays yeah um, no focus group got anywhere near <laughs> their, a critical madness oh my god but can you imagine like, like <laughs> yeah you know, maybe do don't we, run over a baby yeah do we really need to have a scene where a baby in a carriage is run over in front of his mother you know, that's a little and, extreme. And the mom is run over twice. <laughs> Can we maybe go with just once? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I should probably clarify that. I saw the follow-up to this movie, Killing Spree, before I saw this one. So it probably um, affected my expectations in some way. Because in a lot of ways, Killing Spree isn't just a follow-up, but it's kind of a spiritual sequel. Like, it has oh. a... It has a somewhat similar premise, but also with with some twists along the way, um, and it just kind of plays around with 
slasher movie tropes in in a way a lot like this movie so so i was kind of expecting maybe more from the third act than i would have normally if i had just picked up this movie without any knowledge of tim ritter's other work that said i think uh killing spree is a better movie but i think tim ritter would agree with me because again it's like it kind of just feels like a polished a more polished version of this movie but i I actually really did enjoy um, True for Dare. Um, very mixed execution, especially when you compare the third act to the first two acts, which had some genuinely creative scenes. But um, honestly, this is the type of movie I would support having a remake of, like just, you know, reworking the script, maybe making the mental asylum scene the final scene of the movie. Mm, um, yeah, that seems like that would give that would have more of a punch. But uh, in any case, I would love to see like a big, uh, maybe not a big budget, but a bigger budget, more <laughs> refined uh, remake of this movie because it it has it, it, especially if you know the story of Tim Ritter and how young he was when he wrote and directed this movie. I mean, it's it's honestly a pretty clever. Uh, take on the slasher genre um, just with a flawed execution. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's got some chops. I mm-hmm. it's sort of like in in Plan Nine, the cinematography is great. Like everything's in focus, and that black and white really pops. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between like something made by a filmmaker who was hampered by low budget and maybe inexperience, and something where it's just like it's not even in focus. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Manos, The Hands of Fate, like, you know, they had a camera that could only run for 65 seconds. (laughs) So that's as long as any scene could be. They didn't have lighting to go very far to film anything. So so there's stuff like that where, like, yes, it's somebody's first movie and they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. But, uh, you know, Tim Ritter shows like some genuinely good cinematography, some genuinely good shot choices. There's a full body dude set on fire stunt gag. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot going on in here that you can approve of and that you can enjoy on on those levels. He's promising thrills, chills and spills. And you actually get some of those things. Yeah. Um, and I just add to that a surprisingly strong script just with. Um, yeah a few unfortunate tendencies like repeating like the overlong um, uh, sequence where Mike flashes back to his relationship. But, uh, but you know, that's. Yeah. Well, again, that was his first feature. So, yeah, yeah, you know, if he'd, if he'd had a chance to do it differently some other time, he'd probably do it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, there's, there genuinely is a lot to recommend to this uh and not just because like i have it on blu-ray which means i have a blu-ray of a vhs movie <laughs> i enjoy the perversity of that yes i do too. <laughs> <laughs> i i have a couple of movies like that myself yeah it i got i got to re-release a black devil doll so oh wow yeah that's one i've never gotten around to uh, I was thinking, have you seen any of the Atlas Shrugged movies? No, I'm afraid to. Um, I, I mean, they're not good. They're yeah. they're really not good. But no, no, I bet, I'm sure they are. <laughs> but that was also a first time filmmaker. the The producer director was a guy who sold exercise equipment, 
and had the the option on the film uh, had an option on the book to make the film so he had to get it made before he lost the option and was not a professional filmmaker was not anyone with any experience in the art form and you can totally tell in lots of different ways great and small Mm-hmm. but it, it he had you know a budget in the millions instead of in the thousands and it's just that sort of thing like i would say truth or dare is a better movie than the atlas shrugged movies even with you know having been made for a tiny fraction of that budget and with a largely non-professional cast mm-hmm. uh, because it like you could tell tim ritter's a better filmmaker than those guys how can you tell because he's playing with the tropes here he's got characterization that other movies wouldn't necessarily have he's got surprises in the final act like usually they save the final girl or the final girl defeats the killer sharon gets killed in this mm-hmm. oh sorry spoiler yeah <laughs> Honestly, well, yeah, the, and... well, the spoiler alarm actually goes dun 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 dun. You can tell it's somebody in love with what he's doing and trying to do a really good job. And some parts of it work, and some parts of it kind of work, and some parts of it don't work. But but you can tell. I mean, you could just it it comes right off the screen that he was enjoying what he was doing and he was trying to do it as best as he could. And I mean, let's, let's face it. When I was 18, I was shelving books for, I think five fifty-five an hour at the Wheaton library. I was not getting production meetings for the movie that people had financed so that I could make it. Yeah. And somehow wrangling actors who actually did go on to have something of a professional career. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, uh, that shed that gets burnt down, uh, Tim Ritter's dad built that. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> so, like, it, it's sort of one of those, hey, I've got an old barn, let's do a musical put-on-a-show thing, but it's about a, you know, a serial killer going ahead to murder somebody and then a cop daring him to put down the gun. Yeah, it, it is a good movie. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said this was better than Bloomhouse's True for Dare. <laughs> oh, no, I, I have no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, yeah, and, that and I, I am very glad that, that you enjoyed the movie because I, I would hate to be like the episode of the Trash Cannon where it was just like, so what the hell were you thinking, guest appearer? <laughs> I think the only movie we've done that I actively strongly disliked was Halloween Resurrection and that was uh, and I knew what I was getting into with that. I just <laughs> You cover. knew the job was dangerous when you took it. <laughs> exactly. Well Tim, um I think this is a good place to sign off, but uh where can people find you? Uh right now I I have a I'm half of a podcast called the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. Uh, it is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, as well as the PFPN.com as part of the Prescribed Films Podcast Network. Uh, in that podcast, my fiasco sibling from another fiasco mother, uh, Sean Frost, and I do one-hour deep dives into movies that we think people might well enjoy if they knew about them. 
Excellent. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, the Fiasco Brothers has my personal recommendation. Well, all of my guest products have, have my personal recommendation, but oh, thank I just you. want to give a plug to Tim as well. Um, and I am Chad, and this has been Trash Cannon, and you can find me on YouTube. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter as Reluctantly Chad, and uh, you can also check out my blog on WordPress, Trash Culture. Oh, a uh, good, may, oh, may I give ahead. my Twitter handle? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at Telstarman. Uh, if you would like to say, uh, Tim, really, truth or dare, really, I'm right there. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great holiday, everybody. I'm hoping I'll drop this. If I end up dropping this after New Year's, then uh, just scratch what I just said. But anyway, happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Goodbye.